We are studying through the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible with you, we encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to go to our resource table in the lobby and grab one, and you can keep that. We're in Luke 17. If you wanted to learn about a historical figure, say it's Abraham Lincoln, or one of the kings of England, or Amelia Earhart, or any other historical figure, you would probably, I asked my kids, what would you do? Wikipedia. I was like, come on, guys. No, you would read a biography, right? And that was the second thing they said. That was their second answer. You read a biography. You don't just Google it. So you read a biography of, say, Abraham Lincoln. And what kind of biography do you want? You want one that is basing what it's saying off of reliable sources, right? You want one that's telling you the truth because either that person personally interacted with Abraham Lincoln or interacted with the sources written by people who personally interacted with Abraham Lincoln, right? You're going back to the original sources. You're going back to those who were closest to the time that tells you what, what you, uh, about the person you want to know about. When we read the Bible, particularly the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we're reading are exactly what I just described. Either original sources, people who lived with Jesus, walked around the countryside with Jesus, or in the case of Luke, people who interviewed people who walked with Jesus and read the original sources that were coming out of Jesus's life. And so we have four very similar but unique gospel accounts. And whereas with Abraham Lincoln, you could read 10 different 700-page biographies if you wanted to, and then a lot more beyond that. In Jesus' case, we're not really reading biographies, right? We know almost nothing from the moment he was born till about when he was 30. We have little snippets here and there, like in two spots, when he was a baby and then when he was 12. That's it. Then, Then you meet this man who's 30, and he's saying what to his hearer's ears were crazy things. He's saying crazy things. So these aren't really biographies. The Gospels never tell us what kinds of food Jesus liked, what he liked to do with his free time. Those were just not the concerns of the Gospel writers. They had specific agendas, we could say. They had specific concerns that they wanted to address. And so the the authors of these four Gospels spend a disproportionate amount of space talking about the last week of Jesus' life, which is why many theologians say that the Gospels are... um, Oh boy, I wrote this down here because I knew I'd forget it. There it is. Passion narratives, which means describing the passion of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, with extended introductions. So everything we're reading right now is just an extended introduction to where Luke really hones in on the last week of Jesus' life. The book of Luke was written not by someone who personally interacted with Jesus, as far as we can tell, but rather by someone who carefully studied the firsthand accounts that were available. He tells us that in Luke 1 and most likely interviewed some of the key subjects that he writes about. So maybe he interviewed Mary, Jesus' mother. Maybe he interviewed a couple of the disciples. Maybe he interviewed some of the guards who were standing outside of the tomb. We have no idea, but he clearly tells us in Luke 1 that he's trying to write an orderly account so that a man named Theophilus would know what it looked like to believe in who Jesus was and what he said he did and what it looked like to follow Jesus, to live for his glory. And so, uh, again, we don't exactly know who Luke got these sources from, but we do know that he was trying to convince Theophilus of the truthfulness of who Jesus was. 
and what Jesus did. This book is the longest in the Old Testament. Maybe that's why it feels, at least to me, like we've been studying it for a really long time, which is why, pragmatically speaking, why we're taking very large chunks of Luke uh, each week. But Luke answers these two questions. Again, I hope these are starting to just sound very normal to you because you hear them every week. Who is Jesus? What's it look like to follow him? What's it look like to be a disciple is the way we often describe that. And basically every passage in Luke has answered one of those two questions. And today we're in Luke chapter 17, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 19, which is basically the first half of Luke 17. So in my Bible, it's all on one section here, one page. I'm not going to have to turn a page, which is wonderful. I love it when it works out this way. It'll work out this way about once every three or four weeks, basically. But uh, I hope in your case it's, it's convenient. If not, work through that inconvenience. And I encourage you to have your Bible out the entire time so that you can follow along. I'm going to be reading right now verses uh, 1 through 19 from Luke 17. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, the big numbers on the page are called the chapters and the small verses are called the numbers. I'll be reading chapter 17 verses 1 through 19. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not Ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. A year or two ago, during the summer months, I was standing in line somewhere. I honestly don't remember where, but I remember it was the summer months because the lady in front of me was wearing like a tank top. And I was standing behind her. And that meant that I could read the tattoo that was largely emblazoned on her, I think it was her right arm. And it was a particular mantra, which I assume was kind of like, you know, her thing. This was her statement. If it's the only tattoo you have, and it's really big, this probably is important to you. So what do you think the words were that were written on her arm? 
This is what it said, as I recall. Above all else, love yourself. Above all else, love yourself. An interesting choice. So that's going to be your one mantra to put on your arm for the rest of your life. For a non-Christian, that kind of thinking is totally normal, totally expected. And I assume many people would celebrate that kind of thinking and say, oh yeah, I'm going to get that on my arm or even on my back or something else. And say, you know, that, that's, a, that's a great statement. I'm going to put that on my bumper sticker or something else. For the Christian, though, we recognize what that line expresses. What's it express? It expresses the reality that due to the fall in the Garden of Eden, we are turned in on ourselves. We are focused on ourselves. And we think more of ourselves than we ought. In fact, we typically think higher of ourselves than anyone else in the world does. I think that's probably universally true. We think too highly of ourselves. As a result, we don't think enough about how serious sin is. We don't Uh, We we do think we deserve praise for our obedience, and we fail to praise God for His mercy as if we deserved it all along. This was my lot. This is what I deserve. Give me what I deserve. We end up honoring ourselves, but that's not what we're here to do. And as Clayton mentioned with Reformation Day, that's what the Reformers realized. We aren't here for ourselves. We're here for the glory of God alone. And so, we are here to honor God. Will you honor God with your life? Those who follow Jesus seek to honor God with every part of their lives, seek to praise God with every part of their lives. How do I honor God with my life? What does this passage tell us? Verses 1 through 6 tell us you, do, you honor God by acknowledging the seriousness of your sin. Acknowledge the seriousness of of your sin. Did you know that sin destroys lives? That's what verses 1 and 2 tell us. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You live in a fallen world. I've already said that in this sermon. We've prayed in light of that throughout this service. We've sung in light of that throughout this service. You live in a fallen world, so temptations are going to come just by nature of the fact that you're in a fallen world. But did you know that there's also people who are in positions, often positions of authority of some kind or another, even if it's a parent to a child or an uncle to a a nephew or a niece, an employer to an employee, lots of different relationships. There are lots of people who are in positions who then lead other people to sin. This passage tells us that is a deadly problem. That is a serious matter. Sin destroys lives. What kind of temptations do you think Jesus had in mind when he said this? Maybe he's thinking specifically of false teachers, people who would say something that they know is not what the Bible teaches. I recognize that many false teachers are not trying to be false teachers. They're probably just trying to get an audience. They're probably trying to make money. They're not trying to twist the Bible necessarily. Sometimes they are. Sometimes it's just they're terrible at reading the Bible and they need to study how to read the Bible a little bit better. But perhaps there are people who are teaching wrong doctrine and so in doing so they're leading other people to sin. Perhaps there are people who are dishonest. 
Perhaps there are people who sin sexually and in so doing affect other people's lives, destroy other people's lives. But Jesus says this is such a serious matter that this, you are calling down a woe upon yourself. There in verse 1, woe to the one through whom these temptations come. A woe is a warning. It's, it's really a sense of pity. Like you are going to be judged for what you're doing. There's a whole list of woes back in Luke 6, and there are several others throughout the Gospel of Luke here. But a woe is a warning. You are going to be judged for what you are doing, for the effect that you are having on other people's lives. Verse 2 is stunning to us, though. It would be better for someone to drown than to lead other people in sin. That's what he's saying here about this millstone, which is a humongous rock that often, and sometimes they'd be smaller, but often they would be large rocks that like a donkey or an ox or some other animal would turn to crush grain. This would be how you got your flour or your cornmeal. And this humongous rock is somehow attached to a chain which is attached to your neck, and you're taken out into a boat and dropped into the sea. Do you know how much hope you have that you're going to survive? Zero. You are going to drown. That sounds like a terrible way to die. And what Jesus is saying is, it's better to, to die a terrible death than to lead other people in sin. That's how deadly serious sin is. I read of one pastor who said he often prayed for his staff, for other pastors on their church's staff, Lord, if one of us is going to commit adultery, give us a heart attack rather than making us ruin people's lives in our congregation, ruin our wives and our children's lives, make them question for the rest of their lives whether God is good. I think that's a pretty good way to pray. Sin is deadly, serious, it destroys lives. Notice Jesus isn't saying that if you sin, you should have a millstone hung around your neck. He's saying it's better to drown a horrible death than to lead other people in sin. That's how serious sin is. Sometimes we call it an untimely death. Maybe. Maybe it's the Lord having mercy on other people's souls. It's hard. We, we don't know. It's not only hard to know, it's impossible to know. But what this passage is communicating very clearly is that sin is a serious matter. Who are these little ones? that Jesus is concerned about. That would be any Christian. That would be anybody who's trying to follow Jesus in general. You're trying to follow Christ. You don't need people setting bad examples for you. That's why Paul tells Timothy to be an example of the believers in word and in conduct. By the way you live every part of your life, show people what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus says in verse 3, to pay attention to yourselves. He's saying this to a large group of disciples. We assume it's not just the 12 disciples, and I'll show you in verse 5 in a little bit why I assume it's not just the 12. I think there's a large group of people here, and he's telling them, pay attention, sit up, take the earbuds out of your ears and hear what I'm saying to you. This matters. What is he saying? Why should he say pay attention? Maybe because you could be the one that leads other people to sin. Alternatively, there are people around you who could tempt you. Pay attention in either one of those cases. If your brother sins, he says, he's the person who leads you to sin, he's the person who tempts you to sin, he is the person who sins himself, 
If your brother sins, rebuke him. There's an interesting word for us. What does it mean to rebuke someone? This doesn't necessarily sound like a a great conversation starter, right? You're going on a first date and you start off with a rebuke. Probably not what I recommend, at least if you plan to get a second date. But a, a rebuke is a strong word, calling for a person to see his sin and repent of it so he'll be restored. It's a strong word, calling someone to repent. Trying to waken someone's senses up to the seriousness of their sin. So I've been in positions to rebuke people who felt that the rebuke was unloving. Is that possible? Yes. It is possible that I don't say things as lovingly as I need to sometimes. Sometimes even from the pulpit, perhaps. Uh, In personal conversations as well. But I also try to tell these people when I'm rebuking them. Again, thankfully this isn't all the time. But what I'm doing when I rebuke you is the most loving thing I could ever do for you. If I were riding in the front seat of your car and I'm sitting next to you, you're driving, and I notice you're looking out the window, and I also notice that right in front of us, all the traffic is stopped. Maybe a deer is running across the road. Maybe there's just a traffic jam and you haven't, you're just coming around a corner. You're looking off at the beautiful sunset or something. Is it unloving for me to say, slow down? Now you're back awake. Good job. It's not unloving. It's the most loving thing I can do for both me and you in that situation. I'm telling you the truth. I'm helping you see the situation that's right in front of you so that you don't drive over the edge. So you don't slam into the car in front of you. Would it be unloving for me to be rather animated, to raise my voice, saying it's better to slow down. Would you feel unloved? Probably not. I hope not. I hope you would feel assured. Oh, this person cares about me. Maybe you'd get a little shaken, but hopefully you'd be grateful that you're still alive in that moment. That someone loved you enough to draw attention to the situation that needed to be averted, that was right in front of you. And this is what we do when we rebuke someone. Privately or publicly, we are saying, your sin is so deadly serious, we have no choice but to draw your attention to it. And this is where liberal theology differs from sound doctrine. All right, liberal theology says that we as humans are basically good, right? We're just great people, just affirm you, live your way, YOLO, all these other things that that the liberal theology tells you You just need to enjoy your best life because you are a great person. You are beautiful. Express your own inner beauty, whatever else. That's liberal theology. And it's saying you're beautiful. Sound doctrine says, I am broken from the inside. I am corrupt from the inside. All of my inclinations are toward evil. There is no one who seeks after God. No, not one. This is Psalm 16. Uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 14. So sound biblical theology, as opposed to liberal theology, says that we're rebels to the core and we need to be rescued from our rebellion. Sin seeks to dethrone God. Liberal theology says sin's no big deal. The Bible says sin is a serious matter. It's a deadly serious matter. This is why we need to be willing to be rebuked when someone sees us going astray and why we need to be willing to rebuke someone else when we see them not following Jesus well. And maybe you would ask, well, what if the person, because Jesus just says, If you see someone sinning, there's your if, here's your then. Rebuke him. 
Here's another if the Bible doesn't actually ask in this, in this section. What if that person doesn't repent? What if that person keeps persisting in their sin? The technical answer to that is this verse doesn't tell us. The more general answer to that is the Bible tells us in lots of other places what to do. It says to rebuke them again and to take someone else with you so that they can be part of that conversation. What if they don't respond well then? The Bible tells us what to do then too. It tells them to tell a larger group of people, the whole church where that person is a member. What do you do if they don't repent then? Then you remove them from the church. This is Matthew 18. This is 1 Corinthians 5. This is biblical theology. And it's church discipline is what I'm describing here. This rebuke that's not going well usually requires tremendous patience, like many months, usually. Maybe there's an emergency situation where it's not, you, you just, for the sake of that person, you just don't give them time, right? For their own soul, for the soul of their loved one, for the soul of unbelievers who are watching that person. But typically, there's a long process here. And that's, that's every experience I've ever had in my ministry. But it's designed to help a person stuck in sin be restored to God. It's designed to get the person out of the quicksand so they don't drown in it. Its motive, church discipline's motive, is love for that person and others who are aware of it. Its motive is the glory of God. Its motive is the purity of the gospel. And its motive is the testimony of the church. And again, if you have questions about that, we'd love for you to ask about it. Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. We're just going to keep rolling here. Uh, Tell us exactly what we're supposed to do. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. So, that's what church discipline is. That's what rebuking looks like. Kind of the the Charlie Brown character who just kind of keeps on talking. That's what I'm doing here. That being said, uh, if you sinned against someone, right? So you're not the one uh, being rebuked. You're the one who says, oh man, I blew it. What should you do? I'm going to pretend this little thing right here is a person. You walk toward them, right? This is Matthew 5, 23 through 24, that if you are trying to worship God and you realize you have sin in your life towards someone, you go to that person. What's that person going to do? They're standing over here. Now that's a person. That person sinned against me. I'm going to go rebuke them. And what happens is they meet halfway between and say, you know, it's almost like they're talking over each other. Hey, you sinned against me. Hey, you sinned. (laughs) Or, or, you know, I, I am offended by your sin. I sinned against you. Those are the two things they're saying. And they are reconciled. This is biblical peacemaking. I would love to talk to you about it more if you have questions about it. What I want to tell you is, if you practice this kind of relational peacemaking, it's going to change your life. If you move towards someone who has sinned against you and you tell them, you sinned against me, you need to repent of that. That's a rebuke. It's going to change your life, particularly if they respond well. It is glorious when someone responds well to that. So if you practice this, it'll change your life. It'll change your marriage. It'll change your, your church relationships. And Jesus doesn't say you should just rebuke them one time. What if the person sins over and over and over again? Which is the, what Jesus means when he says, if they sin against you seven times. That's just a way of saying again and again and again and again. There's no limit to it. That's why in the Matthew parallel passage, Jesus says 490 times, okay? Like beyond what you would expect to be normal. 
You just forgive again and again. It's certainly not saying that by the time you get to the 491st time, or in this case, the eighth time, now you can just start socking them, right? You can just smash them in the face and say, you blew it, I'm not going to forgive you ever again. Jesus is saying, again and again, you forgive them, and the person says, I repent, over and over again. Okay, your job is to forgive, not to evaluate the thoroughness of the repentance. Hopefully, a truly repentant person doesn't need to ask for forgiveness seven times in the same day. But again, that's not exactly what Jesus is addressing here. Your job is to forgive the person who has sinned against you. And forgiveness is a gift you give to someone who has sinned against you. That gift is a promise. It's a promise that you will not bring up the offense with that person. It's a promise that you're not going to bring up that offense with someone else. And it's a promise you're not going to bring it up with yourself. You're not going to keep stewing on it. Have you ever stewed for days? I have. It rots. It's terrible to be thinking about what someone has done to you over and over again. It eats you alive. And Jesus is trying to spare you that by saying, when someone asks you for their forgiveness, for your forgiveness, grant it to them. Again, I'm answering all kinds of questions that this passage is not answering. One of those is, what if they don't ask you for forgiveness? They've ruined your life and they don't ask for your forgiveness. Important question. Again, this passage doesn't answer it, but let me give a snippet answer and we can talk about it more in person if you'd like. Have a spirit of forgiveness toward them and then give the gift of forgiveness when they ask for it. And again, it may require you going to them and saying, you sinned. This is a big deal. Verse 1 and 2, this is a deadly deal. Sin is super serious. And so we need to talk about it. All right, so that's, that's there. What if a person's abusing you or you wonder if they're abusing you? I don't want anybody to walk out of this room today thinking, okay, I'm just going to let that go because I'm supposed to forgive, right? Forgive and forget. Okay, so that's not biblical in some cases. Uh, But if they are abusing you, please, Clayton's over there. I'm over here. Please talk to one of us. We want to help. We want to handle that as wisely, as patiently, as beautifully as we can. But if you feel like you are in an abusive relationship, we want to help with that. Please don't walk out saying, I just need to let that go. There are some things you should not let go. And and maybe you need to talk about that afterwards. If you're not a Christian and you're here and you're hearing all this about forgiveness, how does that strike you? Like, have you ever forgiven anybody? When was the last time you forgave someone? Have you ever had someone forgive you? Do you know what it's like to feel forgiven? to have a huge crushing weight lifted off your shoulders because a person grants you forgiveness? Maybe you're here today and you're realizing you have a crushing weight on your shoulders and it's the weight of your sin. This passage calls you to come to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness and let him free you of that crushing burden of sin and grant you eternal life. When was the last time any of us, when was the last time you forgave your spouse, forgave your adult child, forgave your neighbor. Forgiveness changes your life in a beautiful way if you're willing to give, this pe- uh, give people this gift. So, just from these first several verses, I want to urge you to be willing to rebuke other Christians, particularly other Christians. A non-Christian is not going to understand these conversations, typically. I want to urge you 
to be a forgiving kind of person. Do you know why you forgive? Because you have been forgiven so much. One Christian author said that Christians should be the most forgiving people in the world because they are the most forgiven people in the world. I also want to urge you to be patient while waiting for people to forgive you. If you have wronged them and they haven't forgiven you yet, be patient for that. Wait for that time. Verses 5 and 6, just very briefly on this. Maybe you're feeling the same weight that Jesus' disciples seem to be feeling here. And that's the question of like, there's no way! How am I supposed to do this? Increase our faith so we can do this. I think that's how we should understand that next line there. The apostles, so specifically referring to the 12 disciples that he specifically called out to go into other places and preach the gospel and work miracles and so forth on behalf of Christ. Those people said, Lord, we don't know how to do this. This sounds like, this is like Christianity 501, right? Like this is like a grad school class. And Jesus says, look, you have all the resources you need to do what I've called you to do. Those are verses 1 through 6 teach us. We need to recognize the seriousness of sin, but God gives us the grace to forgive others. So how do I honor God with my life? How do I give praise to God? You acknowledge the seriousness of sin. Secondly, you acknowledge the reasonableness of your service. Verses 7 through 10 talks about a servant who's doing his job. All right? So maybe you've got a guy... Maybe you can just picture in your house a guy who owns a farm, and he's got one guy who works on the farm with him. And that guy's out one day dealing with the sheep, and later on he's driving a tractor, and later on he's fixing that tractor, and he finishes his job. It's really interesting. Jesus asks three questions in a row here. He asks a lot of questions in this passage today. But each one is written in such a way in Greek that he tells us what the answer is. It's, It's built into the question. So you can tell that even just from looking at it yourself. In verse 7, will he, not, uh, will he say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? The obvious answer is no. He's not going to say that. What's the obvious answer to number 8? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Well, yeah, duh. That's the obvious answer that's built in. Not the duh part, but the yeah part is built in to verse 8 there. It's just the way that it's constructed in Greek. And verse 9 also has an obvious answer. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No, he's doing his job. And it's not that this passage is not supporting being a jerk as a boss. Like, come on, do your job, people. It's just simply saying a servant has responsibilities. And he knows what those responsibilities are. And he does his job. And then he goes to bed. And he does it again the next day. And Jesus is asking these questions in such a way to tell his disciples, I know what I've just told you is hard. I know that it's hard for you to rebuke other people. I know that it's hard for you to forgive other people or to be rebuked by other people. I know I'm asking a lot of you. Your grace is there for you. The grace you need to do this is available. It's in abundant supply. You don't need to say, increase my faith. You have what you need to do what you've been called to do. And when you do it, you've done your job. You've shown yourself to be a faithful disciple. That's what verses 7 to 10 are telling us. This is your reasonable service, to use the language from Romans 12.1. This is what it looks like to praise God with your life. You say, I've just done my duty. I'm just doing my job. 
I share the gospel with someone. I don't need praise for it. I'm doing my job. I'm reading the Bible with other Christians or even with non-Christians. This is a way of trying to minister to them. You're doing your job. You kept your marriage vows. You're doing your job. You did, went to work as a Christian to show the glory of God by pushing back the effects of the fall in your workplace. You did your job. You don't need extra commendation for it. Praise God that on the last day He will say to you, good and faithful servant, well done. But in the meantime, you're a servant. Do your job. Praise Him for the resources He's given you, the grace available to you in Christ, and keep faithfully doing your job. Instead of expecting more from God, we should stand back and say, wow, look at all He has done for me. There's a a song called, O God Beyond All Praising, that says, For we can only wonder at every gift you send, at blessings without number and mercies without end. That attitude conveyed in that line makes, come on, I need a pat on the back, feel totally redundant, totally unnecessary. He has given you blessings beyond all measure. So how do I give praise to God? You acknowledge the seriousness of sin. You acknowledge the reasonableness of your service. You're just doing what God has called you to do. And you acknowledge the mercy of Christ. Verses 11 through 19, really a separate section. We're combining them here and using a line of them for the the title and the theme of this passage about praising God. But acknowledge the mercy of Christ in verses 11 through 19. He rescues you from a terrible plight. That's what verses 11 through 14 tell you. He rescues you from a terrible plight. Verse 11 reminds us of other passages where it says that in Luke that Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. This is the third one of those. Why is Jesus headed to Jerusalem? To accomplish redemption. And Luke is dead set on pointing you in that direction. It says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Elsewhere it says he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He was on his way to go die for us. And he's doing this, and on his way, he, he enters a village. He's met by ten lepers, people who have what we would call today Hansen's disease, which is basically like a, a, a neurological condition or, or uh, a condition that attacks your, your nervous system, I should say, and it eats you alive from the inside. And so maybe it, it makes your thumb shrivel up and fall off. Maybe it makes your, your limbs lose all capacity. Maybe it makes your face get deformed. Your nose falls in on itself. You can no longer breathe through your nose. Sounds terrible. Don't Google it. I encourage you not to. But all I'm saying is, this was a terrible condition. And in Jewish law, people who had this condition had to be like sequestered off from the rest of society. So here you have 10 people who have no friends but the other nine of them because they're so disgusting to look at. And no one wants to get close to them. When they do, they... Those people who have the leprosy have to call out, unclean, unclean, as a way of saying, don't get close to me because you don't want what I have. This is a terrible plight that these people have. But just as last week we saw that there is a greater problem than poverty, remember we saw that in Luke 16? Here we need to acknowledge there is a greater problem than leprosy. There's a greater problem than COVID or cancer or heart disease. And it's the problem of sin. It's the problem of not being forgiven of your sin. 
And so if you need to choose between having leprosy for the rest of your life or having your sins unforgiven for the rest of your life, it's not a hard question. Choose the leprosy 100 out of 100 times because there is a far greater problem than having a physical condition for the rest of your life and it's eternal damnation. And so again, if you are outside of Christ, we urge you to run to Christ for forgiveness. Don't delay. But Christ shows mercy to these people. He gives them what they do not deserve. They cry out for it. Master, have mercy on us. Maybe they had heard rumors that Jesus had done amazing things in other villages. Please, just one more. Do you have one more trick up your sleeve? One more ounce of mercy you could send our way. Please don't don't understand me to say that I think Jesus was doing tricks, magic tricks. He was working his miraculous power as the Son of God. I just want to give that footnote there. But they were crying out, there's got to be one more ounce. Please let us have our normal lives back. And Jesus gave it to them. And they trotted off to go see the priests, which all this is that I'm telling you is Luke 13, I'm sorry, Leviticus 13 and 14. If you want to read about the leprosy laws. You go off to the priest to show, look, my leprosy is receding. It's going away. I'm clean now. Let the priest be the one who shows that you are clean. Jesus is saying, go off to the priest. And on their way, their leprosy dissolves away. Their limbs miraculously get their strength back. Their fingers miraculously grow back. Their skin looks normal. They don't have white blotchy stuff on their skin anymore. They're healed. And nine of them keep going to the priest. And one of them realizes how much mercy he's just received. Acknowledge the mercy of Christ. He has rescued you from a terrible plight. Why does he do this? Verses 15 through 19 says he rescues you for his own glory. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And I just read that the way you would read that if you read Greek, and I'm not saying, wow, we're for you, read Greek. I'm just saying, there's an underline there. There's a bold there. There's an italics there. He was a Samaritan. Why does Luke feel it's so important to underline that for us? Put it in yellow highlighter. It implies that the other nine were Jewish people who were not thankful for Jesus' ministry, but foreigners were beginning to see how glorious Christ was. Praise God. Most of us are not Jewish people by blood. Most of us are what the Bible calls Gentiles. We have been rescued from our terrible plight because of the mercy of Christ, not because of our bloodline. And he does this for his glory. Jesus asks three more questions. Were there not ten? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. You are now forgiven. You are now cleansed. Go and declare the glory of God to your friends and to your family. And I want to point out very briefly here from verse uh, 16, what we have is an implicit but crystal clear declaration of the deity of Jesus. If you have any question, is Jesus God? Verse 16 tells you it is. Where's that at? Verse 16, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks or giving him praise, giving him honor. How does that tell us that that Jesus is God? Because 
everywhere else this happens in the Bible, when it's not Jesus, at least in the New Testament, I'll put it that way, in the New Testament, because there are lots of people who fell down before false gods in the Old Testament, right? But in the New Testament, when people fell down before someone else, that person rebuked the person falling down, okay? So you have Peter in Acts 10, and Cornelius, when he meets him, falls down at his face, and Peter's like, get back up! I'm just a man! Then you have Revelation 19. You have, I believe it's John, falling before an angel. And the angel says, get back up! Worship him! And who's the him there? The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, described throughout the book of Revelation. So those are the places where people fall down, but in the New Testament, when the disciples fall down before Jesus, like Peter in the boat, where he sees what Jesus did and pulling in hundreds or thousands of fish at one time, and Peter falls down on his knees. He says, I'm unclean. Jesus doesn't say, get back up. I'm just a man. That's what we would expect, except he's God. Worship him. Will you give praise to God? Will you recognize the seriousness of sin? Will you acknowledge that when you live the Christian life, when you follow Jesus, you're just doing your reasonable service? And will you give praise to God? One of our missionaries, I prayed for him today, is Tim Cassie. As Frontline Missions, uh, he's written this book called A Company of Heroes. I want to read just a brief section. I could have read almost every page from this, any page from this, I should say, as an example of what it looks like to praise God in the ordinary ways of following Jesus in the Christian life. But this is describing uh, some missionaries who I prayed for uh, in Morocco, particularly uh, in North Africa. This is what Tim Cassie writes. Late afternoon, we set out for the ancient walled city of Tarudant in hopes of reaching it before nightfall. There's no church here, and no known Christians, but several here have asked for Bibles, and so we go. A walled city is a fitting picture of the situation all across North Africa. The sheer scale of the walls of opposition and the doors of opportunity are overwhelming. But my dear friends here, that we give, that we support through our giving, and other such gospel foot soldiers are the everyday, everywhere infantry that God is using to move the boundaries of His kingdom into more and more hearts. I share Ernie Pyle's affection for those on the front lines, as a World War II historian, Ernie Pyle's affection for those on the front lines in every danger and season. He wrote, I love the infantry because they are the underdogs. They are the mud, rain, frost, and wind boys. They have no comforts, and they even learn to live without the necessities, and in the end, they are the guys that wars can't be won without. By the time we reached the city, dusk was settling in on its streets, and last light touched the top of its battlements, and now, before entering the walls of this Jericho, we believe the words of Christ our captain as he walks among his troops here on the front lines, giving us his strong personal promises that cheer our hearts. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored. I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory." This is what God is using us to do. Will you give praise to this glorious God? Let's close in prayer. Lord, make us grateful people. In the way we sing, and the way we give, and the way we express hospitality, 
the way we love your word and take it in and drink of it deeply in all of these ways, make us people who recognize we are but humble servants. We don't deserve any praise for following you. We can only praise you. Give us that heart today in Christ's name. Amen.